Okay. Well, Caroline, thanks for uh, joining us. I've been looking forward to this um, ever since I read your book. And so I pulled out all my notes in that so that I can uh, could review and go back. And Dan hasn't read it yet, right? Right. right. But um, that doesn't mean that he might not have questions or add to the conversation that we can have. So um, is there anything you'd like to start with in terms of you know, introducing yourself, your work, because um, I think you would do a much better job than I could do. <laughs> Thank you. I'll I'll start with two um, two important things first: an acknowledgement of country, and then I'll say a couple of things about um, about me to situate my work for those who haven't um, come across it yet. But um, I just want to acknowledge that I'm joining from the colonized and unceded land of the Bejigal people of the Eora Nation in this land, so-called Australia. Um, I live, work and play on this land and um, I recognize all the benefits that accrue to me because of colonization and dispossession and all the privileges that I have as a senior academic in a wealthy Western-based institution. Um, I think talking about colonization and decolonization is at the heart of ethical research practice and to recognize, you know, that there are ways that even when we think we have good practices that we are still complicit to dispossession and um, disregarding and silencing Indigenous knowledges and the violence that's perpetuated um, against Indigenous people every day. Um, so I really wanted to ground what I have to say in that, and I also recognize that Indigenous folks and scholars and leaders around the world have said, you know, stop acknowledging country if you're not prepared to do the work. That's not what we want. And acknowledgement is just not enough. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm hoping that to ground our conversation that we start with where we are placed um, on colonized lands, um, we, can, we can have a more meaningful conversation about what we're actually doing and why we do it in the way that we, we, um, we choose to do. Um, and so I've been living on this land for a number of years now. I'm a first generation migrant, so I'm an uninvited migrant settler. Um, so at the moment, I'm working at the University of New South Wales. I'm an associate professor in the School of Social Sciences, and I'm also the deputy director of the Big Anxiety Research Centre. Um, so I'm blessed with many opportunities to explore um, the ethics of research, um, especially of participatory research with creative methods. Um, even though I haven't had the experiences of the people I collaborate with. So a lot of the people I work with have experienced forced migration, um, have lived in refugee camps, have lived in detention, and have been resettled on humanitarian visas um, in this country. Whereas I first came here as a, an international student and then as a skilled migrant. So I recognize that my experiences are very different. And um, I guess I say all these things up front um, so that I'm not pretending that I know what it is like um, to have those lived experiences and um, you know that there are limitations to that and um, that there is a need for us. So even though I'm very happy to have those conversations with you and to share this knowledge with other people, that there is a need for all of us to make space and to seed that space for people with lived experiences. Yeah, I, I would say we agree with that. And um, and whatever our positions are, certainly we're limited 
um, in in what we know and how we come to know it. Um, yes. Given the work that you're doing and the emphasis and the direction, um, how how does that kind of integrate and fit into your teaching responsibilities as well? Or how do you do that? Yes, I, um, I've really struggled with that side of things. Um, it's, it's an interesting connection to think about how I can integrate the principles that are much more sort of evident and stronger in my research practice and to bring those in the classroom because of the constraints of um, here at UNSW, we have terms and then nine weeks of teaching, which is quite a short turnaround to um, lead students into a, a meaningful engagement with the concepts. But there are some strategies. Um, there's certainly a lot to do. There's a lot of work um, because I think we've passed on content from generation to generation without questioning it. Um, and certainly when I started as an academic and I was a young new migrant, I thought I, I got a set of PowerPoint. I thought that's all I have to do. I have to teach the PowerPoint. <laughs> it took me years before I thought, no, you can put your stamp on it and you can actually talk about the things that matter for you from your perspective that are based on your research. Um, so that took me a lot of time to feel comfortable doing. And of course, the moment I started doing that, um, my teaching became more enjoyable and students responded much better. <laughs> um, it was actually a pleasure. It wasn't something that I had to do. It was something that I wanted to do. And the advantage of being engaged in a number of projects year after year after year is that I always have new examples to bring into the classroom. Um, if students feel uncomfortable by what I say, I think I've achieved my goal. I think that is the job. Our job is to challenge and to disrupt their way of thinking. And if they're uncomfortable, then in there, they might speak up. They might not. They might stay with the uncomfortableness for many, many years and not realize what the impact of what I've just said is until they encounter a situation, you know, years after perhaps. For other students, they're so relieved that they don't have to explain themselves in the classroom, in this institution that's, you know, that's quite monocultural. So it is a risk to put some of those principles in as the, at the core of our discussions in class, especially when we're talking about decolonizing research methods. Um, but this is what we are called to do, right, as educators in higher education. It's, it's not enough just to say, this is how you need to do things. It's more important to say, have you thought about who you are? Have you thought about what you bring to the interaction? Have you thought about why you might be perceived a certain way as the researcher from a particular racial background entering a community that doesn't know you? Have you thought about all the politics of of um, these interactions and your, your way of engaging. So it's asking those, those critical questions that are very unique to each individual about how they will undertake research. But getting people to think about um, the elements that are considered unimportant, for, for many years, these elements have been considered as an aside, but the way that I teach about these concepts is that they're actually at the center of good practice and high quality research. You cannot claim to have high quality research and high quality findings if there's no reflexivity, if there's no attempt to decolonize your approach before attempting to engage with communities that are vastly different to you. Um, 
if you don't understand cultural safety and how that's relevant to a research context, to the research team, um, if you use words like co-production and co-design and co-research, just because they sound really good and they do, they convey such great principles that they are thrown around in so many contexts. But if researchers um, don't take enough time to unpack what those actually mean and what they imply for us as the researchers funded to lead a research, for example, then I think we're just rehashing what's been done in the past and not producing anything new. And I would hate to do that. I would hate to perpetuate that because the shelves are full. <laughs> we need new approaches. Well, thanks for answering that because um, so many of our authors and I think the readers of our journal are academics. They, they do conduct research and they're teaching. And uh, we both are believers in that um, <clears throat> each of our, the activities and the um, responsibilities that we have as academics um, inform each other. And we think that that's really important. So uh, as I was listening, everything that I heard you say about our responsibility to be good researchers and to take all of these principles into consideration so that we can produce and learn things that are meaningful and relevant uh, all apply to the classroom. So that was kind of my, I just believe in that. And that's a pretty important piece of that. Each informs the other. With, the, uh, with your emphasis on decolonizing and being an academic in a Western-oriented university, mm -hmm. successful Western-oriented, um, do, you, do you find the university is, is uh, uh, open and leading the way toward these decolonizing efforts, or is a bit of a is it a bit of a tug of war to to move this institution who has practices based on Western understandings of ethics review and giving grades and giving individual um, individual credit for publishing? You know the the individualism that's a part of that. How how do you think your university is doing? Uh, in coming around to those realizations, um, or, or is it kind of a slog uh, to get these things done? Can you speak a little bit about that? Of course. I think any meaningful change takes a lot of work over many years, especially when the practices that we're talking about have been entrenched in our realities for centuries. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, for a new country like where I am for, for decades. So the principles, the colonial principles that have been at the foundation of the institution itself, of academia itself. Um, it's so entrenched in every aspect, as you mentioned, in research practices, teaching practices, institutional cultures, administration, mm -hmm. um, Every, every facet of institutional life is grounded in those principles of imperialism and, um, and co uh, colonialism. The, I'll come to your, to your point about how our university is doing uh, in a minute, but I think for me, looking at things from a research perspective, it, it's been such a difficult process to recognize um, those underpinnings and how they've part and parcel of everything we make choices about including or excluding in um, our project designs, 
or if we go back to teaching in in the content that we say oh this is what students need to know um, we we make decisions based on the same principles that we are in the institution we're looking outside to communities that we describe as vulnerable or we describe as hard to reach um, and we place the institution as the ivory tower where knowledge is generated and we step outside the ivory tower uh, momentarily to gather some great data and then come back into the institution and put it through the machinery of um, theory um, to produce knowledge for an academic audience. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to think that we have moved on from this, um, that there are now contemporary practices that really value the community engaged nature of participatory research, where we reposition who holds knowledge. And spoiler alert, um, knowledge is not within the institution. Knowledge is everywhere outside the institution. Um, as people employed by um, academic institutions, we are not, um, we, we don't hold a patent over knowledge, um, whether we like it or not. And so what I appreciate is to see, I appreciate seeing institutional commitment. I think what is lacking to decolonization, I think what is lacking are practical steps to do this well and to do this meaningfully um, and not just sort of um, organize, you know, multicultural days and things that have no impact whatsoever and that are just window dressing. So I don't use terms such as inclusion, equity, diversity, or multiculturalism anymore because they are window dressing terms. They are terms that sort of say, oh, we are doing all the right things, but there's no, um, there's no real change. And some of those practices that are so harmful require radical changes. And I think there's no openness to radical change within institutions. Um, I love it when I see students and staff members protest against their institution. I think it's really important because we are part of this machinery. And if we don't protest and we say, you're not gonna do this in my name. This is what we need to do. This is how we collaborate. This is how we do research. We you know, it's 2023, we have new practices, we have new ethical agreements with our community partners. We have a different understanding of knowledge. Um, so it is, it is an uphill battle. Um, and I don't know that it's going to be resolved quickly. I think it requires so much commitment and resources. I think one of the major problems with institutions is that there, there are commitments, there are documents, there are you know, strategic plans, but very little resources to actually implement those commitments and principles, then um, it's all speak and no action. Um, and what I worry about is that people within institutions who do come in knowing the problematic aspects of academia, but hope that there will be change or try to work towards changing those structures that are more harmful or are more sort of set in their ways, um, it's quite an isolating experience. And I do worry that institutions are pushing people who want to see the more significant changes outside of the boundaries of, um, of academia. And that's, that's something that we need to address. Mm. Um, so yes, I think it's, it's an ongoing battle. Um, and I use the word battle on purpose <laughs> because I think it is. It, it, it is a matter of having to challenge each and every time there is a sign that institutions are not doing what they say they are going to do. Mm. 
or that they are um, supporting incremental strategies when they should actually come up with more radical changes. If that's really going, going to impact people who are marginalised within the institutions, but also beyond the, um, the walls of institutions. I'm having the same experience listening to you that I had as I was reading. It's like, I, I just need to keep listening. I just need to keep taking it in. It's, it's wonderful. It's exciting. And it's scary all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> and that is the same. I, so I just felt like throughout the whole book, you were speaking to me and just like you're doing now, even though I didn't have an idea of your voice just yet. So <laughs> great. You know, you said, for example, that one of the radical changes was that there were different ethical agreements um, to be made with, um, I forget how exactly how you said it, but can you give, give us an example of one of the new kinds or different, um, more meaningful, fair ethical agreements that you... Uh, yes, uh, of course. Manage? Uh Yes, I'll give maybe a couple of examples, one relating to institutional ethics review boards um, or committees, as we call them here, um, and the other more in terms of our um, ethics in practice. Mm -hmm. So in terms of institutional processes, I think a number of scholars, including myself, have said a lot of things about the overreach of ethics committees and how um, especially when we do community-based participatory or creative research, how we have to jump through several hoops. Um, and rather than this getting easier over the years, I've, I'm finding that it's getting harder. It's getting harder and harder. And, and um, in my case, I expect two or three rounds of revisions to be asked every time I put in an ethics application. And so it makes me wonder what the purpose of the process is. There is value in ethics um, approval, but the fact that I have to um, push back, sometimes educate, sometimes explain two, three times <laughs> um, just to get ethics approval to do a form of research that I think is more ethical and more collaborative. It says a lot about what, what's valued in that process. Um, we still We still have a big gap in terms of um, institutional processes not including um, the perspectives of co-researchers and so the people who are supposed to be at the center of who we are protecting through an ethics application have no say whatsoever in the process um, so one of the ways that I've tried to address that is to include their perspectives their feedback on the ethical approach uh, or the ethical concerns of a project as part of a project um, which has been really good because for co-researchers, they think, oh, so you actually also want to know what we think about the process, not just our lives. And we, it's not just, you know, we're not just data, but you're actually interested in, in, in our opinions about how the project is designed and who's part of the team and how, how you do things. There's not yet a process to feed that back to the committees and to say, this is what people have said. Um, but so I think even there, there's, there's, there's wriggling room for change. Um, but we definitely need newer systems that are not so onerous and that don't automatically place us as researchers, as people who are going to do the wrong thing. Um, the other example, I guess, is how I collaborate um, with co-researchers. 
and I'll come back to this term co-researcher because I've I've think differently about it um, than I did when I wrote the book. But I think even just um, as much as possible, trying to have a model where co-researchers have a say in the research questions and the research design, especially in terms of the choice of methods and how they are going to collaborate with collecting data and if they can in analysis, as well as um, dissemination and sharing of the findings and co-writing articles, et cetera. So I think coming up with a model where um, co-researchers feel, okay, so this is not just you wanting to advance your research, you're actually interested in asking us whether this will work and in which direction we will go and how we are going to be involved and what we are going to get out of this. Um, even though these principles, they are not new, but they are still new. It's a huge contradiction because I think when we speak to similar-minded people, we know that these are not new. People have been working in this collaborative um, co-design way for a while. But when we step outside that bubble, that comfortable bubble of people who understand why we do it and how we do it, I tend to encounter a lot of surprise and resistance to the fact that this would be rigorous research. Um, even though, of course, because we scrutinize much more um, through the um, institutional review processes, then we have to put more measures into place to support co-researchers and to, to, to ensure that the research space that we are creating collaboratively is, is not harmful, but a place where they can flourish as individuals and as researchers. Um, so I think we are moving in the right direction, but I always say to my students as well that when we look back um, to how things were done in anthropology, say 50 years ago, we critique everything about how they used to do research and how voyeuristic it was and how that outsider gaze of a white, -based a white and Western-based researcher going to an exotic country um, that was the norm. That was how research was conducted. And we can critique that now and say, you know, there are issues of power, et cetera. And we try to do things differently now. But I also think about people in the future who will look back on us and critique how we do things now. Um, and I wonder what is it that they are going to find? So I would like to think that they will find practices that were um, supportive of the lived experiences of co-researchers that were not exploitative or extractive, um, that there were institutions who put in the resources to deliver the research as it should and over the long term. Um, so a number of more ethical practices. But I kind of keep that in mind in terms of not being smug about how, how we do research now, Mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, 50, 60 years ago, they thought they were doing things perfectly well because the norms were different. Um, so I'll just, I just want to say one thing about the co-researcher terms, which I've used throughout the book and which sat quite well with me, of course, until I finished the book. Um, and then I came across some critiques of it from um, co-researchers in, in the community, collaborators, who, who sort of said, but isn't this another term that sort of covers the real power relationships? And isn't it another feel-good term Um when in fact the power dynamics are still the same, even though you call a participant a co-researcher, but really you're still holding the power. So um, I love those challenges <laughs> and I resist um, the urge to go into my manuscript and change the terms completely because 
I think it's also important when you're writing a book to say this is a record of how things were for me at that time. Mm-hmm. And my thinking starts changing as soon as it's gone into production. <laughs> um, and then the writing that I engage in afterwards critiques those notions so that hopefully if people read my work over a number of years, they will see that some ideas have actually evolved or changed or improved, I'd like to think. Um, so for me, that's actually the best part of writing the book is to see how those ideas simmer for a bit and then how I can bring them to my future writing mm-hmm. well did you want to say yeah I, I because think I, I was going to follow up what's the what's your idea of co-researcher now or do oh. you maybe don't even use the term or you have another term or another description I use the term with a little bit of unease um and I sometimes I use um terms such as this co-researcher because I think it it has quite a political message about mm-hmm. how we treat the people whose stories are at the centre of our research. So I still use it, but with um, with an explanation that we are conscious that it doesn't resolve all power dynamics and the power and control issues in collaborative research just by the use of the term. Um, the next project that I've worked on after this book is um, an edited collection called Disrupting the Academy with Lived Experience-Led mm-hmm. Knowledge. And so in that context, we used to say people with lived experience. And then even that sounded a bit phony. Um, Dr. Helen Kara said, you know, everybody's got experience. So what does that actually mean? And so she came up with another term that, that's expert by experience. And for me, that sat really well Mm -hmm. with the kind of scholarship that we wanted to promote in that edited book. And so even that has changed quite a bit for me as to, um, you know, because people with lived experience, it is true, it's quite vague. When someone points out (laughs) to you, it does sound quite vague. But to say that someone is an expert by experience Mm -hmm. really um, grounds the knowledge into people's everyday realities in a way that researchers academic researchers in institutions perhaps do not have and and interestingly enough we've also been confronted by the assumption that those two identities are mutually exclusive that if you're an academic researcher you cannot be an expert by experience and so we've actually had to push back back against this idea as well to say no that the academy is changing and there are a lot of experts by experience who are also academics. It's quite an outdated idea to say that they sort of sit somewhere outside the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have, um, we bring some expertise based on our experiences. And um, yeah, so I think even thinking about those terms that we throw around without really thinking about the implications have become quite important for me to not perpetuate the ideas of um, passivity and um, or people's experiences being boxed under one label only. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's really important to have an intersectional approach and to recognize the u- uniqueness of each person's experience. I like the term expert by, by experience. experience. Yes. I'm, then that kind of, for me, begs the question, how would you refer to the academic researcher who maybe does not have uh, direct uh, experience in whatever is being discussed. I mean, is it expert by uh, title or position? <laughs> you can try to classify yeah. or have a word for the researcher now. Yes. If we have a better term for the 
for the participants yes. in the community, then how can we fairly represent, you know, the the power and privilege and expertness of the academic researcher? Yes, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I'm, I think here of all the processes where we are asked to really sort of you know, when we apply for promotion, for example, we have to position ourselves as the experts and of everything <laughs> um, brilliant in every aspect. But I think how I like to describe my skills and knowledge now is specialist knowledge. So I will say I have specialist knowledge in participatory research approaches. Mm -hmm. um, I quite like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the next opportunity that someone will challenge it. But for now, I quite like this. I think, you know, as a as a collaboration or as a team, um, some people are paid, have are privileged to have a paid position where they can they have the resources to develop that specialist knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then when they engage collaboratively with experts by experience in the academic space and sometimes outside the academic space, then that combination is quite wonderful. Um, it's almost like an epistemic community. So everybody brings a skill set that perhaps the other person doesn't have. And together, um, we're creating the best possible approach because we're drawing on expertise and specialist knowledge from different people. Yeah, that could be an article, even, you know, expert by experience. I think it's really opens up the possibility mm -hmm. of thinking differently about the participatory contributions of the different members, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, with giving them credit where credit is due and using language that supports that. Yes. Do you, do you think um, that the ideas that you put forward in your book, in which you said is the book, I wrote the book that I wished I'd had as a student, plus all the new and extended and expanded ideas that you're talking about now, um, do you think that these ideas could be transferred to <clears throat> and for other methods as well beyond not just not just limited to PAR? Absolutely. I think because the the decolonial principles that are at the core of why we do research, even and how we approach research, um, that's across all disciplines. And that's across a number of methods. So some of my more recent writing has challenged the roots of some methodologies such as body mapping, um, which was also grounded in majority world expertise and practices. But once it entered the Western context, it's now being sold as a Western-based methodology. Um, so there are several examples like this where um, I, I, I mentioned that the methods are whitewashed. And I think that's a really good expression because it, it tells you exactly what happens is that the method is extracted from its social cultural context because it works super well over there. And it's brought into not just academic, but Western based context and Western centric ways of um, approaching research. And then it suddenly becomes this amazing method. And, and funnily enough, that we have to use to go and work with people in the majority world. So there's there's a kind of vicious cycle there that doesn't acknowledge the roots of some methodologies. Um, there are other approaches um, that I've critiqued. Um, story completion is another one that's grounded in psychology and psychotherapy 
but I've critiqued it because of the nature of what it does um, in terms of its approach to storytelling. So if you know um, story completion, it's essentially a cue that's given to someone who needs to respond to the cue and write a story um, with that prompt. And so part of the critique is who designs that cue um, and are there any social cultural considerations in terms of if this is the start of a story of how the rest of the story needs to go and the beginning, middle, end arc um, of storytelling, it's very Western-based. And so what happens when we use story completion in a very different social cultural context um, where knowledge is understood completely differently, where storytelling takes so many directions that we are unfamiliar with um, in, in the sort of mainstream storytelling. So I think, yes, there's definitely um, scope for um, deconstructing and decolonizing um, other research methods. Um, it's actually the topic of a book that I'm starting to work on, another edited collection, which I'm so fortunate to be editing um, because I've come across so many researchers from different corners of the world and I've, I've contacted them and I said, you know, I want you to talk about the method that you use and what aspect of it um, are decolonial and how do you use something like theatre-based productions in a decolonial sense, um, some, some decolonial feminist approaches. So there are so many examples from South Africa, um, from Lebanon, from the Philippines in different disciplines. So I'm, I'm having the time of my life, as you can imagine, just discovering all these different ways of thinking about decolonization and of um, implementing decolonial pr principles. And I think that's what's missing from the literature. Um, something that's kept me out of the literature for a long time, it's because of the language. It's very jargonistic. And it always felt, whenever I tried to read an article, I felt like I didn't understand anything. And so part of my role, um, if I'm advocating for us to decolonize research methods, we need to come up with some practical ways of doing it. We can't just come up with the concepts and the principles and all agree that this is a nice thing that we should all do if we don't have practical advice um, and strategies to do this during our research or in our, in our teaching. So that, that will be my next um, book project. Um, Everyone that I've invited, so that's that's just to give you a sense of how much that's needed. Everyone that I've invited said yes within two weeks. They had their abstract in, the proposal went in, the proposal got through. For me, that says a lot about people have been doing this work for so long but haven't had a chance to actually talk about it. And I think the literature does still, the publishing industry does still focus on tell us your findings. Mm -hmm. Whereas we're saying we have to talk about the process. The decolonial principles are embedded in the processes. And unless we talk about it and we name those problems, we will still keep doing research in the same way and then wonder why things don't change. <laughs> so I think it's the time is ripe for more publications, of course, on decolonizing research methods. Um, there are a couple of really good examples that I, I love drawing from. Um, Linda Tuiway Smith's book on decolonizing methodologies is phenomenal. Um, there are um, other researchers, this um, a group of scholars who have written decolonizing ethnography, and the lead author is um, Carolina Alonso Bejarano. 
when I read those books, I'm like, these are my people. These are the people who understand what I'm talking about. These are the people that I don't have to explain over and over again why we need to decolonize research and why we need to decolonize methodologies. Um, and they're able to write in a simple way. And I, I come back to this point because I do think it's a problem with the um, decolonization um, literature. Um, but it's the responsibility of everyone. I mean, we, we, we live on colonized land. We cannot claim to do research without paying attention to how we're reinforcing or challenging the colonial project. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's not just for Western-based countries. Many countries that have been colonized also have to reckon with the impact and the legacy of colonization and how that's affected um, research, teaching, education, knowledge in their countries as well. So for me, there's a much wider audience for this conversation, but it's quite niche. And I find that really surprising, to be honest. And I hope that through some of the work that I do, that we can broaden this, that conversation and for more people to feel involved and, and preoccupied with those questions. One of the questions uh, that I'm having now is about you know, the dominance of English. You know, we talk about, you know, the Western, the, the colonizers, um, but the English language has really dominated the publishing world, uh, not only books, but uh, journal articles. So what are your thoughts about um, how to deal with the, um, the privileging of academic work being so skewed toward the, the English and, uh, what about those folks who's, um, who are Arabic-based languages or Chinese or Indonesian? Um, what are your thoughts about how we can break through that kind of limitation? I, I appreciate that question very much. I'm bilingual myself. I've tried at some point, so I speak French. And when I was in Canada, I on a fellowship, I did approach a couple of colleagues and we thought, oh, maybe we should write something in French. Um, we found it extremely difficult and we found it, um, we found that our options for publishing were quite limited mm -hmm. and um, we were quite discouraged from doing it, actually. It was, it was very obvious. Um, but so as a, that's a, a side point. But in terms of your question, I think that's something that I'm thinking about a lot because of the decolonial literature. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is um, from Latin America. Um, a lot of it is French, actually, mm -hmm. um, and I can see quite a few um, scholars trying to go back to the original source, um, not just the translation. So we are fortunate that many of those um, seminal works have been translated in English, but of course there's always value to try to go back to the source if it's possible, if it's within your skill set. Um, it's one. It's another way... I think your use of the word dominance is very true. It's another way that we said, yes, this, this knowledge is precious, but only if it's in English, only if it's translated to the dominant, um, the colonial language of English um, or French. You know, in some of the African nations, French has been the, the colonial language. So I think there's a lot of tensions and politics there in terms of how we tackle this without... Um, Without further, I think without further marginalizing works in other languages. Um, here in so-called Australia, we've tried to think about how we could 
privilege the scholarship of other Asia-Pacific countries. Um, because Australia is, is huge physically, but also in terms of um, the intellectual contribution um, to, to various debates, Australia and New Zealand are the dominant forces. But there is so much knowledge, as you say, that come out of countries such as the Philippines, Indonesia, um, the Pacific Islands, the Pacifica knowledge that we have in this region is just unbelievable. Um, but yes, opportunities for publication are few and far between. One of the strategies that we've used in the book that I mentioned before, Disrupting the Academy with Lived Experience-Led Knowledge, has been to ask um, the authors to, 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 to be led by people with lived experiences or, or experts by experience. So there is a chapter in there about Pacifica knowledge of how they manage um, the COVID-19 situation in New South Wales. Um, and so we encourage them to choose. So they all spoke English, but we encourage them to, you, to choose how they wanted to structure their conversation to gather the contributions for the chapter. They were able to use words that have no direct English translation, which is the case in many, in many countries, in many cultural settings. Um, and we, we asked them to be the decision makers in terms of how they wanted to share that knowledge. Because the other aspect we're very conscious of is that we, we, we can still be extractive, even in our collaborations. So we can still say, oh, this is what interests me um, when perhaps our collaborators want to talk about 10 different things and we go hone in on one point and we say, oh, this is what interests me. It's still quite exploitative from that perspective. So, so with this example, what I mean is to create spaces for um, people who don't have the same publishing opportunities. Um, it's a lot of hard work. So I'm not going to say, pretend that it's easy. It's a lot of hard work. It requires a very different level of commitment. Um, so for this book, book, for example, we couldn't just have a call for chapter and say, you know, if you identify as one of the authors, like just send us an abstract. No, we had to develop relationships with each group of authors. We had to understand where they were coming from, what their aspirations for even writing a chapter in a, an academic book meant to them. Um, so it was very personal and so it was very messy too. <laughs> That's the reality of working with people. Many were first-time writers. And I can tell you that my co-editor, Marie Higgins, and myself, we are not the same people as when we started off this project um, because we had to do things very differently to what we'd been used to doing for so long. So I don't think there's a simple solution to how we increase those publish publication opportunities um, in a way that's valued um, equally, if, if that ever happens, to what we call the top journals and the journals where everybody wants to have their work published. Um, I think open access is, is one of the, it's part of the solution. Um, it has its own sets of problems in terms of costs, um, but we need to look for more practical solutions to broaden the conversation and the diversity within, within the conversation. Um, what, what I worry about the most is that in 20 years' time, the three of us will be meeting and having the same conversation because nothing has changed. Nothing changes concretely. So people agree with the principles, but mm -hmm. when they look at how difficult it is going to be to actually support um, people with, 
who who might want so that's the other issue too some some people from different parts of the world for whom english is not their first language sometimes they want to write in english because they're very well conscious of the politics of publications and that if their work doesn't appear in x and y journal no one's going to take them seriously if they don't go to a conference and they have problems with getting visas with funding their travel uh, and accommodation no one will listen to them no one will even know that their work exists. So that's hugely problematic. Well, and to extend that, one of the questions I had was, you know, we're not only limited by the language and the resources to help people present their work. Um, we were talking at the last TQR conference, there, there was talk um, about publishing activist research but there's no space for that. And so we were beginning to talk about developing a space for that because it wouldn't appear in the normal academic kind of fashion. So it's, it sounds like you're on the uh, road to that, developing that, <laughs> helping others with that as well. Yeah, I think, and I think ac academia is what we make it. Um, I think there is an assumption that, um, or, you know, initially that's how I thought that here's the box and this is what you need to do to fit in. Um, whereas in recent years, I've been more about, no, this is what I bring. You have to be the one to expand the contours of what you think is academia so that I can come in and share what I bring. Um, and then opening the space for those who come after me um, to do the same. So it's not just about finding a space for me, it's also opening up the spaces even more broadly. Um, and I feel that sometimes I, I can understand why this is daunting for, for people who feel my research doesn't really fit in any of those categories, any of those disciplines, any of those journals, um, and perhaps wait for things to change. But I think the first step is to find that community of similar-minded people. And, you know, I speak very um, enthusiastically about this group of authors that I'm working with, with those edited collections, because I found the similar-mindedness in those processes. And that gives me a lot of strength and a lot of courage to then try to make space and change the space where I'm in, because I know that others are also doing this work in different corners of the world. I think that's the most important part is to not be isolated and to find people who are similar minded. So whether it's at a conference, whether it's online, social media has been really good in that sense. I've come across so many people's work that I wouldn't have ever if it wasn't for um, the dreadful Twitter. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, you know, there's strength in that as well, that it gives us a space. I've seen some um, scholars say that it gives us a space that the academia doesn't give us, the, the sort of physical structure doesn't give us because we can only sort of collaborate within our disciplines or within our faculties or with other institutions. But there's a lot of really good work, thankfully, that happens well beyond the boundaries of institutions. Um, so finding that community is a source of strength and it's, it's a source of inspiration. It's a it's a source of learning um, because when, when we are able to share ideas without fear of being censored or without fear of being told, oh, that's not real research or that's not what decolonization is about, um, um, that's not 
that's not the right type of research. We can say, no, actually, there's another group of at least 20 people that I know who are doing this work. And then when we do something publicly, so whether it's publish a book or organize a conference or a gathering or a group on social media, other people say, hey, I'm also doing this kind of research. I had no idea you guys existed. I'm so glad I found you. And there's always that feeling of I'm so glad I found you because I think the, the academy is designed in a way to make us feel that we're the only ones who do research in a certain way and that's not the right way. And then when we come across others who agree and who, who have pushed the boundaries even further than us, which is for me the best experience when I come across people like this, um, then it reminds me not the academy is what we make it. We are the people within the academy. So that's why it's our responsibility to say, thank you very much for all the years of doing research in this way, but here are some new ways. And this is why it's important to do things in those new ways, because even though it was great to do research in that particular way with established methods, it's also marginalized more people, sometimes been harmful to people, and we don't want that to continue. We want to change those things, keep the good things if there are, but we want to change what needs to be changing. And we know that it's a huge task and it's not an individual responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. I wonder if, there's, if there is a journal or would be room for a journal who is dedicated to uh, activist research of some sort, deliberately not academic. You know, that you, to get into this journal, you have to prove that you're not an academic. <laughs> you have no interests in academic activities. Um, I wonder if there would be a place for that, you know, to kind of create a, a, a legitimate dialogue between the academic activists and the non-academic activists. There may I be think they, sorry, I think they already exist. I'm thinking here about the refugee and asylum seeker movements Mm -hmm. who come up with their own principles of how to do research ethically. None of them are in academic institutions, but their principles are just brilliant mm. um, because they can afford to say things in a way that they're not going to think, oh, is the, is the institution going to agree right. with this or am I going to get into trouble for saying right. this? Mm -hmm. um, so that's why those, those forms of knowledge beyond the specialist knowledge knowledges that we have in academic institutions are so important because they push the boundaries and they provide sometimes much more objective um, strategies and a, a more objective assessment of what needs changing. Um, one thing I should say is that I, 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 I really value everything that happens beyond the academy. And I think it's important, especially for early career academics to know about those forms of knowledge and activism, because it can be so demoralizing to be in an institution where you feel you cannot flourish. Um, and, but to know that people in the community or internationally or across the region or um, through networks are doing this work with very few resources. Um, with the mobilization of, you know, the knowledge that what they hold um, as what they know as their lived experiences is what is going to guide their practices. Um, with the knowledge that everybody at different level is also pushing through um, wanting for change. And some change will happen over many, many years, but other changes can happen 
on a more regular basis. I think for me, for any form of change to take place, it needs to happen simultaneously through different activities from different actors. So for me as, a, as an academic employed by an institution, what I can do is just a small slice of the pie, like just one small piece of the puzzle, because I know that others are working at every other piece of the puzzle and that's how we come together and create what we want to create, that space where multiple knowledges are acknowledged and revalued. Um, I definitely don't claim that I can do that by myself. But what I do is to think about, so what skills do you have? What skills can you bring? So if you can edit a book and provide the writing support for people who haven't written about their practices before, then that's one small thing that I can do. Um, if I can challenge the language in how my courses are um, written um, or how the learning outcomes are conceptualized, then that's one small bit that I can do. So I think the more you look, the more you can see the spaces where that change can occur. And occasionally, if we can bring everyone into conversation, the activists outside um, academia, um, people within academia who want to see the same changes and we, um, people with lived experiences who, you know, some advocate at the UN. Um, I've been really privileged to work with groups at so many different levels who I can see are putting in all the effort and all the work. And then I, I can't then sit on my laurels and say, well, I've done my bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's then, you know, what's the next bit I need to do? This is done. Where do we go next? Who's going to do it? Who's going to come to the party? So I think it's a it's a much broader effort that's needed for the kind of change that we're after. And people are doing the work. I think it's it's more the politics of whose work is being seen and whose work isn't being seen, um, which you know we we know that happens. And again, it's our job to to challenge that when we think, um, you know, I, I sometimes hear, sometimes I review papers or I hear someone speaking at a, at a conference or a workshop who says something as if it was the first time we've thought about this idea. And I think, no, actually, you, you think you've come up with this, but I can tell you that people have been saying this for years. People in the community have been telling you for decades, this is not new. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Mm. Um, so that sort of exemplifies who has the platforms to say the information, um, who is continually silenced. Um, I have a colleague um, who has written a chapter in the book on disrupting um, the academy, who is um, an expert by experience who talks about complex mental health. And she says she gets asked because she presents well. She's not too messy for the audience. And so people can actually listen to her, but she's completely aware that they ask her and not others who have very similar experiences to her because she presents well, and that's not too uncomfortable for the audience. Mm -hmm. So it says a lot about who we are willing to listen as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think the academy has a lot to answer for in terms of whose knowledge they've excluded decade after decade after decade. Um, and I'm, I'm, I want to be positive and to say that in our lifetimes we will see some significant changes um, because there is momentum. I can see more and more examples of people saying, no, we are not doing things like this anymore. We want things to change. So I like that very much. It's the fire in my belly. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I'm also aware that it, it can be demoralizing when institutional processes don't change, despite mm-hmm. willingness and commitment and community. Caroline, I want to um, say thank you very much for spending the time and talking with us. And um, you've given us so much food for thought and really, I think, important messages about take things and move further, uh, stretch, um, ask the questions about like, what else can we do? How else can we do it? Who else is doing this? Those are all great, I think, very practical um, encouragers for uh, for us as members of the qualitative report um, editing process and publishing process, but as well as designing research um, and finding different ways to make it useful and valuable for others as well. Yeah, it sounds like a, just a great <laughs> collection of incubating ideas. You know, it's yes. like just kind of cooking them and. Uh, Yes. This one one hour you covered so many things. Mm-hmm. I'm eager for people to listen to this podcast because Thank I think you. they're very, very uh, taken by it and hopefully motivated, you know, to follow up with these ideas and maybe follow up with you and your colleagues who who do this writing. So I urge, I really urge folks to read um, the book that kind of uh, generated and started this discussion among us participatory action research ethics and decolonization and um follow up with all this rich wonderful provocative challenging encouraging information that you've taken us beyond the book thank you it's been such a pleasure thinking out loud with you And, I think we, uh, could talk, every- we could talk for hours. Oh, and we'd be happy to do this again. <laughs> and um, we will, if it's okay, probably come back to you and maybe yes. ask for advice or say we're thinking about this. What else? What else might we be able to think about? Mm-hmm. Sounds great. And and thank you for the opportunity because this is also part of of the process, isn't it? Is to is to decide who you give the opportunity to and why. Mm-hmm. and how that fits with the bigger plan of, of what we want to see changed. Um, so I really appreciate it. And, yeah, it was lovely to talk to you both. Okay. Yeah. Thank right. you so much. You take care. Yes, you too.